But first, we start with the search for a COVID-19 pandemic. Now, have a listen to this. This is U.S. President Donald Trump this week uh, saying that the search for a vaccine is nearly reaching success. Here's Trump. We will have a very successful vaccine, therapeutic, and cure. And I will tell you, we're very far advanced. We've already started tests and trials. So I think we're going to have a very, very good answer to that very, very soon. All right, let's check in with Horacio Bond now, UBC adjunct professor of serology at the Division of Infectious Disease at UBC. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Hello, good morning. Thank okay. you for the invitation. Thank you for being here. When you hear the uh, the U.S. president there talking like he did this week, he, he almost makes it sound like we're imminent. We're very close to finding a vaccine. He had he had said at some point the Americans were maybe maybe get a vaccine up and running this year. Is is that possible from from your perspective? Um, well, um, to get an approved vaccine, you need to go for multiple steps and barriers. So uh, as today, I check and there are uh, more than 150 trials already running around the world. Wow. Some in U.S., some in Canada, everywhere. And the, some of, there are only 13 that what is called clinical, means that they are testing already in people, and I will explain a little more later. Uh, the rest, about 138, if I remember well, they are in preclinical, means that first you have to prove in animals if you infect the virus, with the virus you infect the animals, and if they develop antibodies, so, and then you can prepare the vaccine based on that result. So you have to show that you have neutralization of the virus. Right. Just for the audience, the vaccine is to prevent the infection, not to cure. Once you have the virus, you are sick, you cannot do anything with the vaccine. That doesn't work. It needs, needs to be before. Right. Now, the, once you pass the preclinical stage, you go to the clinical stage. That means that you have between three to four phases, what we call the first one, you take a group of 40 people that are volunteer, they are not sick, and you vaccinate. And then you need to expect that these people will produce antibodies, means proteins, that next time they will encounter the virus, your body will kill that. That takes time as well. The second phase, you need to go to a group of 200 to 500 people, start to be bigger and bigger. And the third phase is up to 3,000. So you have to show in a huge population, you cannot base your information in 40 people because it's not significant. You cannot do any statistics. You need to go to a big mass of people. So that takes time. You have to enroll people. They have to sign, sign a consent. And you have, you, we don't know what are the, the, the toxicity about this vaccine. If it's good, it's going to produce something to you. So all this stuff needs to be evaluated in the first phases, basically. Okay. Now, once you, yeah, once you have that, then you start to produce the vaccine. Okay. Uh, yeah. That, obvious, that obviously is, is a lot of steps to get toward a, a successful vaccine, and I think you described it really succinctly there. Do you think that it's good to know, though, that there are so many trials going on around the world and that the search for this vaccine is happening on a global scale? I think that is very reassuring and great, for, and great to hear. Would you say that the timeline for the potential discovery of a COVID-19 vaccine, do you think it's, that is faster 
than for previous vaccines? Like with so much effort around the world uh, on fighting this disease and this virus, it, it, do you think the potential to find a vaccine is, is potentially faster for for COVID? Um, I think that it can be because there are a lot of companies involved on that. Um, yeah. Some of the phase one have been already approved. They test 40 people and they show that they produce the antibodies. Now they go to the next step. The problem with coronaviruses in general, so we have the previous SARS-1 that it was in 2000-2004. We have the MERS that was the Middle East coronavirus in 2012. We don't have any treatment for any of the coronavirus that may uh, infect a human, basically. There is no uh, drugs, there is no antibodies, there is no um, vaccines. So uh, we don't know yet. You know, it, it can be good for a small group of people, but we go to 300, 3,000. We, you know, it's not known if it's going to work or not, but uh, it can be a certain grade, grade of protection as well. But, you know, that's time, and I don't expect in the next year we will have something because there, is, wow. there are a lot of tests you have to do. You don't want to in, inject something that will be bad for people that they are, they are healthy, basically. Right. You vaccinate just to protect in the future, but, you know, if you inject something and something costs, uh, is not working or they, maybe the antibodies, they, they don't last for a long time. That's the problem we have with influenza virus. Why you have to take every year a new shot of influenza because the virus is changing and every year is different. So okay. Maybe, yeah. After they, let's say they develop a vaccine uh, successfully, how would the manufacturing process on that vaccine work? Would it depend on where the vaccine is discovered? Would there be any kind of patent problems that would prevent global uh, production and distribution of a vaccine? How does that work when a vaccine is produced? Well, that is a very interesting point you raise because um, it's not simple. The companies that develop the vaccine uh, can start to produce. In general, supposedly the vaccine is developed in U.S. U.S. first will produce the vaccine to vaccinate uh, its population. It's right. not going to, okay, you know, you have 10% in U.S., we send 20% to Canada, 50% to Africa, for example. It's not going to happen. They will vaccinate first their population. Now, uh, there is another, another issue about where the company is located. For example, we have a company that belongs to Montreal that is uh, developing in the U.S. Now, apparently, according to the international law, everything is developed belongs to U.S., even if it's a Canadian company. So there are a lot of legal and maybe litigation uh, around that. So it's not, easy to be a, it's not going to be easy, but definitely once you have a massive production and you know it's like a, we get the influenza we get millions and millions of doses and everyone is vaccinated uh, it takes time you say you need to have the capability to produce so many as well so uh, in a short time basically okay is is very briefly is the development how, how important in your mind is the development of a vaccine to to fight this combat this virus how critical is it well, it is critical. Either you protect your population by vaccine, means you vaccinate, and then you are protected when you encounter the virus, or what some countries did, but they stopped that, what you call the herd immunization, means that yeah. you open everything, every, everyone gets the, the disease, um, and then you produce your antibodies. So over time, the virus cannot find a host to yeah. multiply. 
and they disappear because they need to continue to multiply. They cannot multiply by themselves. They need to infect a life cell. That is the difference. All right. If they're outside of the body, they don't do anything. Okay, here's what I'll do right now. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk more with my guest, Horacio Ba. He is from UBC. So just before I go to a couple of calls, Horacio, yes. uh, we played a clip earlier of U.S. President Donald Trump sounding very enthusiastic about the potential to get a vaccine very soon. There's some speculation in the United States that, that Trump, the Trump administration is pressuring researchers to come up with a vaccine quickly, maybe on a political timetable, if they can get a vaccine out this fall before a U.S. presidential election. In your mind, is that even, is that even remotely possible that a vaccine could be developed, let's say, before the end of this year? As I say, uh, you need to go through so many uh, volunteer and vaccinate. Uh, I agree that, you know, now there is a, the first phase, 40 people tested, they show the antibodies, uh, pr- protecting antibodies. So, you know, maybe in two months, the uh, U.S. decides, okay, let's go and start to vaccinate. But it's not sound statistically or scientifically proven. You can start, you know, maybe it doesn't work, but you say, oh, we found and we start to vaccinate everyone, and that's it. But that doesn't mean you are protected because you don't yeah. have enough evidence to say it's safe, it's protecting, you are not going to get the virus or the disease, and uh, it lasts for a long time. That is coming over time. You cannot accelerate, you know, the right. immune system. Okay, yeah. Here's, let's go uh, open the phone line. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on yourself. Let's go to your phone calls. Tom on the open line. Hi. Hi. Uh, listen, two, two comments or a question and a comment. Number one, isn't it true that there's a good chance we may never develop a vaccine just as we have never developed a vaccine for the common cold or HIV AIDS and a lot of other things? And secondly, we keep talking about Trump in the U.S. and how, how you know we're pretty smug up here. But I'm worried about Alberta, Ontario, Quebec. Uh, they're on fire, and people coming from those provinces to BC. I think we need to start focusing a little more on what a shitty job we're doing in Canada and other provinces right now, and, and how that could be devastating to us as a nation. Okay, Professor Bach, your thoughts on that? First of all, about the possibility of never finding a vaccine. Your thoughts? Definitely possible. It can be that we develop a vaccine, but after one month, you don't have any more the antibodies. We don't know yet. Uh, it's a very, uh, not everyone is responding as well. Maybe some people will need to get an extra a shot. At this point, we don't know. We never developed a vaccine against SARS-1. Uh, my understanding was because at that time, even a lot of money was invested. After one year, the virus disappeared. So there's right. no need. So we don't know at this point if we'll come or not. Uh, there are some problems with the virus because it's covered. If you take a Christmas tree, and you have all the nice uh, uh, decoration, it's exactly the virus. The tree is the virus, and it's decorated with a lot of uh, uh, sugars. And these sugars are the same sugar that we produce. So it may be complicated for an antibody that is produced by the vaccine to reach and neutralize. So we don't know at this point. It can be that we'll never develop. We need to see what's happening when you test 3,000 people. Let's That's go back cool. to the back to the phone lines. Sean on the open line. Hi, Sean. Hi, Harry. Dan. Good. I, I got two other questions. One is, uh, how does the vac- um, um, this um, um, virus multiple? How does it grow? And second one is, are they all genetically identical? 
I'm, I'm sorry. It's very hard to understand. Maybe my phone, but I, I couldn't okay, understand your you question. Could, could you clarify your question? Yeah. Uh, when the, the first one is how does it, that, how does the virus um, grow? Second one is um, if it's just spread in two. Are they all genetically identical? Okay, can the virus mutate, I guess, is effectively what he's saying. Well, uh, just for the audience, virus, viruses always mutate. There's yeah. no specific a, a virus that will stay, stay forever because the process of multiplication inside the cell is induced, inducing mutation. Some of the mutation may be critical because it can be changing a part of the, the virus that is targeted by the vaccine, by the antibody generated by the vaccine, and cannot work anymore. That needs to be a surveillance as well. And there is, a, in Canada, there is a huge um, 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 program running to check what is the sequence of the uh, virus. It means what is the nucleic acid uh, going if there is a mutation, if this mutation is passive, means doesn't do anything, or is active that may change the aggressivity of the virus. Definitely may happen. That's the reason they're working, waiting for the second wave, the third wave. In all the story, every pandemic we have in 1917-18, always in Spanish, in Spain, basically the Spanish flu, what the influenza, what they call, always we have a second wave that is in general much more aggressive than the first way. So um, a definite can be mutation, and we don't know yet this virus. You know, it's just a few months. We don't know how it will evolve over time. Professor Bach, yeah. thank you for coming on the show today with your expertise. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank Have you. Have a great day. Thank you. Same to you. Horacio Bach from UBC. He's in the Department of Infectious Disease Research there. As we continue to face the threat of the COVID-19 virus, many jurisdictions around the world have developed contact tracing apps that you install on your phone. This would allow public health officials uh, to trace the progress of the virus and community spread. If you come in contact with someone who has been exposed to COVID-19, you could get alerted on your phone through this app, contact public health officials. It's been tried elsewhere in the world. Now it appears it is coming to Canada. Yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a contact tracing app, which would be voluntary. He says it's coming soon to Canada. Here is Trudeau speaking yesterday. Here's how it's gonna work. If you test positive for COVID-19, a healthcare professional will help you upload your status anonymously to a national network. Other users who have the app and have been in proximity to you will then be alerted that they've been exposed to someone who's tested positive. The notification will encourage them to reach out to their local public health authorities. At no time will personal information be collected or shared and no location services will be used. The privacy of Canadians will be fully respected. All right, Trudeau speaking yesterday about this contact tracing app being developed in Canada. Have you heard him say there it would be voluntary, it would help to trace the spread of the virus into the community with public health officials. I wonder how many people would be willing to install this app on their phone. Think about that. We'll open up the phone lines in a little bit, and I'm interested to hear how many people would be willing to put this uh, app on their phone. Let's check in with Michael McAvoy now. He's BC's uh, Independent Information and Privacy Commissioner. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thank you very much for coming on again. You're welcome, Mike. Okay, so we've heard Trudeau describe this app. 
what are, are do you have any concerns about this as British Columbia's privacy commissioner about how this app would work? You heard Trudeau there pretty much bending over backwards to tell people don't worry about your private information. Do you have any concerns about it? Well, the first thing I need to say about it, and I find it kind of um, strangely ironic, the Prime Minister talks about respecting the privacy rights of Canadians. He has not, at this point, uh, consulted with my colleague, uh, Daniel Turian, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, to talk oh. about this, which is kind of surprising. Um, I would have thought that would have been one of the first things that he would have wanted to do. I think on the face of it, uh, the app as advertised, and I emphasize that as advertised, um, actually looks pretty good from a privacy perspective. Yeah. Uh, essentially, you're keeping track on your own phone of those contacts that you've had. And if you test positive, in essence, what you do is you notify. Your phone is responsible for notifying all of your contacts. That happens automatically. It only, of course, notifies other people with the app, which right. means, as you can, as your listeners might fully appreciate, a lot of people have to download the app to make it at all useful. And I think what we found around the world is not a lot of people have been downloading these apps or enough to make it useful because I think people don't quite trust um, the way, uh, you know, personal data has been handled generally in our digital economy these days. So we have to build a bit of trust, uh, I think, before an app like this is going to become uh, effective. Okay, that's a very interesting point about you have to have enough people download it in order for the thing to really be effective. Like, what percentage of the population would have to install an app like this on their phones in order for it to be an effective tool? What I'm told by people who would know the area well, something like 50 to 70% of people have to have to download it, which uh, that's, a, that's a very large number. And when I look around the world and talk to my colleagues globally about this, um, uh, Singapore, which is kind of where this started, the pickup has not been very good, uh, somewhere around 20%, far short of what's needed. Iceland has probably got the biggest pickup of any country that uh, I'm aware of about, at about 40%. And even there, the, uh, the head of contact tracing says uh, he didn't describe the app as useless, he says, but it's, but it's of limited utility. So okay. we're spending a lot of time and effort and uh, resources on this. And you know, I, I, I do wonder if it's all worth it and whether we should be just employing uh, more of the old-fashioned method of contact tracing. That's, uh, I think it's worked certainly very well in British Columbia to date. Yeah. Has any jurisdiction around the world, to your knowledge, made the use of these apps mandatory in order to affect their, uh, effect, you know, increase their effectiveness? Yeah, I think variations of a mandatory app have appeared in uh, China. Yeah. <laughs> is one place. Uh, that's certainly not a place that any, any Canadian would want to go. Um, certain elements of an app, I believe, in Taiwan, uh, where it essentially was used to quarantine people. Uh, so the app would be on your phone, and if you uh, went outside of a certain sort of physical distance, uh, the authorities would come and check in on you. And in fact, if you turned your phone off, the authorities would come and check in on you. Uh, this is obviously not a place where any of us would want to go. So the app would have to be voluntary. And if it's going to be voluntary and get pick up, again, I cannot emphasize the word trust, uh, uh, you know, more forcefully, because yeah. that's what it's going to have to take for the app to be useful. But again, the preliminary indications are the way this is being structured, the architecture, we'll have to have a look under the hood uh, when it actually comes out. But what's being discussed, uh, I think, is uh, leaves us room for hope that it's uh, a privacy protective app. 
Right. When, when, speaking to Michael McAvoy, BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner, when when the Prime Minister yesterday kind of rolled this out, he made it he made it sound like it was a, a a really great app that a lot of that he hopes a lot of people will would install on their phones. He described the ease of use that it's kind of a sort of a set it and forget it kind of app. You just install it on your phone. It runs in the background. It doesn't run down the battery on your phone. He said as much as other apps have done in the past that have come out. And he made it sound like it's a it's a very easy thing for people to do, and obviously hoping people will will get into it and and, and install the app on their phone. Let's have a little listen to this. This is uh, Trudeau speaking about that yesterday. If you have a phone that alerts you that you may have been in proximity with someone who subsequently tested positive, you can just call public health and uh, they'll work through the next steps that you have to do. It's something you can just download and forget about. Okay, I kind of like that element of it. You just install it on your phone and then it's working for you in the background. You don't have to worry about it anymore or maintain it or anything. And uh, it makes sense though, right? I mean, do you think that in, in theory it's a good idea? I, I take your point about the, the limited effectiveness of it if we don't get enough people signing up for it. But in theory, it sounds like a good idea. It isn't. It isn't theory. It is, it's, yeah. it is a good idea, and it's, a, I think, an example of how technology can be used to assist. Keeping in mind, it's, it's, and I think Dr. Henry has talked about it as a just one additional tool that can help. This is not a silver bullet that's going to solve uh, the COVID nineteen, and and that's another thing. People shouldn't get a false sense of security. Yeah. You've got the app on your phone. Uh, you don't have to take care anymore. You don't have to socially distance. No. Uh, you need to continue to uh, to do all of those things. And um, uh, the other thing I think uh, the Prime Minister mentioned, uh, and there's a big if there too, if you have a phone, you know, keep in mind that COVID has really disproportionately affected um, our elderly population. Uh, yes, many yes. of them uh, do not have phone or do not have the newfangled technology. And so, uh, you know, that's something we need to think about as we, as we deploy a system like this, is it going to reach? Is it going to is it going to help the people who are often most affected? And that's a big question mark. Right. You mentioned earlier that some of the other countries that have tried these apps around the world. Are there any other jurisdictions within Canada? Like I believe some provinces have tried this. Have they not? Yeah, Alberta. Alberta has actually yeah. uh, uh, done an app. Uh, they've downloaded. I'm actually just uh, in the process of uh, talking to my colleague in Alberta today. Um, they had an initial, I think, a flurry of people downloading the app, but I'm not sure that it's got a lot of uh, traction uh, to date, but uh, we will be checking on, on those uh, numbers. Okay, as BC's privacy commissioner, what are the key privacy concerns around this app in your mind? As, as Trudeau described it yesterday, he said the protection of Canadians' privacy will be paramount here. This is a voluntary app that people would install in their phone. It would not have location services, and he talked about geocaching. What does that mean to you, and what should it mean to Canadians who might be worried about their privacy? Well, it ticks a lot of the boxes, I think, from what Canadians would be concerned about. I mean, what I think the concern has been, not just here in Canada, but actually globally, is that government is collecting a massive information about people, you know, where they, who they associate with, uh, where they go, um, all, all that kind of information. And what, um, what these apps have been designed in a way to do, and by the way, that's a place where countries like Germany, Italy, Denmark, the UK started off from, wanting to centrally collect that, the state collecting that information. They have all backed away from that now, uh, realizing that the, the public is uh, quite distrustful of that. So it's really more about 
the information being collected. It's the contact information. It's done voluntarily. And effectively, what we're doing, if we test positive, if you or I test positive, we would be, in effect, alerting our fellow citizens that we've been in contact with. You'd be doing it anonymously, but you'd be doing that. All of the information would remain on your phone. And that's what is a a key element, that it allows uh, you as a citizen to be in control of that information. And, and it makes it uh, more privacy protective. So that's the right model. Again, uh, when the app comes out, uh, our office will be looking under the hood to make sure it's as advertised. Yeah, I think it's important for, for a guy like you, who is kind of a watchdog on, on privacy protection in, in British Columbia, to have know everything about this app and have access to it. And I just wanted to go back to one of the the first points you raised about your, your federal counterpart at the federal level, the Privacy Commissioner for Canada, that this had not been run by the, the federal commissioner. Um, have you been in touch with the federal commissioner? Is that is that how you know that? Yes. Yeah, we've been yeah. in touch. Uh, we are in close uh, contact with our uh, colleagues in Ottawa because we jointly run lots of investigations. Uh, our offices coordinate a lot of activities. So I have to say, I was a little surprised when uh, they let uh, they let our office know that. So I hope that's a, a, an issue that's going to be fixed uh, soon. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner Terrian's team in Ottawa has a very strong group of uh, technical analysts, and and you know this is where the Canadian government I think wants to be, as the British Columbia government wants to be, is they want to have um, independent oversight of uh, organizations like ours, if it's as advertised, to say so. And uh, that we can assure the public that uh, you can download this app safely in a way that's going to be of great benefit to uh, to society. And um, so, again, we look forward to uh, to looking at the technical architecture and and hopefully being able to say to British Columbians and Canadians, uh, yeah, this is going to work for for you and work for all of us, and hopefully uh, flatten the curve once and for all in this country. All right, Michael McAvoy, thank you for being on the show today. Appreciate your time. You're welcome, Mike. As we continue talking about uh, the economy in British Columbia recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic, the government has put out that Restart BC plan to get industries up and running, to get the economy going again. And one of the crucial industries in our city and our province is film and TV production. It's absolutely huge. British Columbia has become kind of a Hollywood North, especially in Vancouver. Lots of film and TV production have been going on in the city, employing lots of people as well. It is a great industry for BC, and it has been largely shut down during this pandemic. Now BC's film industry has been given the go-ahead to start production again. Once we have guidelines in place and once we've got protections in place against the spread of COVID-19. So let's talk a little bit about that now. I got a great guest for you, Pete Mitchell. He is the president and CEO of Vancouver Film Studios. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Pete. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. The film and TV production has been uh, tremendously successful in BC over the years. And man, what a body blow the industry took with this uh, pandemic. What's the What's been the impact on the industry with COVID-19? Well, what we've seen is a um, complete shutdown of physical production. So that's, um, uh, you know, the process that people will be familiar with uh, seeing, you know, people on location and in their houses and working in studios. So uh, visual effects and animation has continued on, but the physical production side has stopped. And that employs directly around about 60,000 people. So wow. they're all sitting on the sidelines right now waiting to get back to work. That's incredible. What's happening at, at uh, Vancouver Film Studios? Have you guys been able to keep anything going or has it been inc- completely shut down? 
No, it uh, it completely shut down. So, yeah. um, at the time, mid March, it was a voluntary shutdown by the industry. So everybody just uh, down tools went home. And um, what we're finding, like many other industries, I think, is that it's uh, quite a bit harder to restart than it was to shut down. Um, so everybody's, you know, obviously through that shock period, and um, that we all went through. And now it's time to put in place, you know, rules and protocols so that people can return safely to work. And believe me, there's a lot of time and energy been spent on that, uh, both in BC and uh, internationally. So we're getting there, but it's uh, it's a long road, and I don't think we're ready to go uh, just yet. Yeah, boy, that's thousands of people out of a job and in, a, in an industry where people are passionate and, and love the work, and I'm sure they're looking forward to getting back to work. But let's, let's talk a little bit about that safety plan there, Pete. WorkSafe BC has released new health and safety guidelines to contain the spread of COVID-19 for film and TV production. And it's interesting looking down, it's a very detailed kind of plan and guidelines, everything from costumes to makeup, transportation, catering. It looks like it's it's all covered. What do you think of, of this plan to, to get the industry back up and running again? Well, as detailed as that plan might sound, it, there's another few steps we've got to go of, you know, department by department and, and then how all those departments are going to interact. So if you imagine a film set, you've got, um, uh, you know, uh, in front of the camera, a, a bunch of actors, maybe not a bunch, but you have actors and they have to be safe. Um, and so uh, how close they're able to get to each other or not is an issue. And of course, hair and makeup, all those kinds of things, uh, wardrobe that are attached to them. And then behind the camera, you have the camera crew and then all the people that uh, behind them are, are in place to um, make sure the, the film filming runs correctly and properly and, and everything's available when it needs to be. So there's on any given day 150 people around a camera, um, if not more, when you have extra. So all the interrelationships between all those people, how they do their jobs, how everybody's going to take a big two steps back and um, uh, restart, all has to be worked out. And then you have the interrelationship of the businesses that are doing this because, of course, they want to be safe and uh, mitigate their risk. You've got the employees. You've got the employees' representatives. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. Okay, speaking to Pete Mitchell, he's the president of Vancouver Film Studios. And when we talk about this industry, you talked about those tens of thousands of jobs. We're talking like billions of dollars in investment in British Columbia. This is an industry, before the pandemic hit, how are you guys doing? Or how was the industry doing in BC? It looked like you guys are doing really, really well there. Well, if you asked me in January, it was going to be our best year ever. We yeah. uh, uh, were running 55 shows simultaneously, uh, all those 60,000 people were fully employed and that doesn't include suppliers so i'm not counted in the 60,000 all the, the businesses around the industry who may be 100% in the industry or maybe just 10% but you know they're all impacted by this uh, shutdown and um, you know we really have a great uh, product and service here and we'll get back to that it's just a matter of time and 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 being cautious uh, we don't want to you know run out there and get started too early and then have right. setbacks right so uh, it's just um it's a balance of all these things. And another big issue, there's two other big issues that we do have to uh, transcend, and that is uh, borders, because uh, a lot of people do come and go across the border uh, for the film and television industry. So um, that is actually possible now, but uh, it's not um, something that's regularly happening. So we have to work our way through that. And then, uh, of course, uh, everything comes down to insurance. Uh, insurance is an issue. 
because companies can't get insured right now against COVID. And for some of the bigger companies, that's okay because they self-insure. But for a lot of the smaller, particularly Canadian productions, uh, they're um, not able to get up and running because they can't get insurance. And wow. again, uh, there's a whole host of people that are working on that with a, a, a proposal out to get it going. But um, it's, it's a little complicated, but I don't want to sound too negative because uh, the, the, the film and television industry is built on agility, creativity, and, uh, you know, turning a camera around at a moment's notice because the director changes his mind or the weather changes. And that's what's happening. All that creative energy, all those 60,000 people in their own way are working to get it restarted. And uh, frankly, we have, uh, you know, because BC has come through this uh, crisis uh, much better than some other places, um, we are going to be a destination um, that is highly favored when it all keeps going, when it gets back up and running. Yeah, like I imagine when you take a look at some of the, the continuing problems of the pandemic that they have in, in California, for example, uh, compared to how well we've been able to achieve flattening the curve, do you think that could potentially be something of an advantage for British Columbia? If we, is it possible British Columbia gets a bit of a head start over, say, Hollywood? And getting TV, film and TV production up and running again? Absolutely, it's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of people who are in Hollywood who would, at this moment, perhaps given the choice, be uh, prefer to be in Canada, yeah. uh, particularly British Columbia, right? So, um, so that there is that, uh, you know. But then, when you think about an actor coming to Canada to do uh, an eight-month series. Um, in the past, they would have been able to hop back and forth on weekends to see their families. Um, so that's all interrupted. There's no guest stars going to be coming up from the States for a while. It'll actually give Canadian actors um, a lot more opportunity, I think, than they've had in the past. And uh, rightfully so. We have great talent here. Uh, so often a producer or director will just go with you know who they know. And so this will open up uh, the opportunity um, for them. And that's, that's a really good thing because that can have lasting benefits uh, down the road there, there's you know great talent that is often overlooked in uh, this part of the world that's an exciting element of that i hadn't thought of that before and especially when you when you mentioned the the challenge of the border uh, that you, you you touched on briefly there like right now for example uh the border is shut down to non-essential travel and when people do come into the country they're expected to self-isolate for 14 days do you guys do you guys have any idea how this is going to work now for the bc film and television uh, industry. Do you, I mean, do you have a lot of people coming from the United States to work on productions here in BC? It's not a lot of people, but it's key people. So, yeah. um, as I've said before, you know, Sidney Crosby is to the Pittsburgh Penguins as Freddie Highmore is to the Good Doctor. And these are just key individuals who um, everything is sort of revolves around. Uh, my my biggest concern right now <clears throat> is that is consistency. So if there's um, uh, a show that wants to bring in five people, let's say it's a director and four actors, uh, we're keeping in mind that 98% of the people who work on set are from British Columbia and go home to their families at night, which is why the hockey analogy doesn't really work because there's no bubble you can create around that many people, but over 10 months. But, but um, I would hate for a show to try and be launched and five people come up and three get through and two don't because there's different interpretations of what essential work is. And so we're working on that to make sure that our, you know, uh, border agents have a consistent message and that, you know, it's all about certainty. If we're going to come up there to Vancouver, to D.C., are we going to get through? So, you know, that's uh, 
Another really interesting uh, sidebar to this, I think, was not a sidebar, but um, Netflix had like a 10-year head start on everybody on streaming. And it's like we're at a restart right now because uh, I don't know about you, but I've watched every single thing that there is to watch on Netflix. And everybody's thirsting for new content. And we're at a new starting line, but the starting line now involved Disney Plus and Apple, two enormous companies with big resources. And so out of the gate, there's going to be a scramble for market share, and BC can only do you know, really well uh, out of that situation. Okay, um, there's a lot of people working in this business, to say the least. What, what would you say, Pete, to, to people who have often wondered about the film and TV production business in British Columbia and the career opportunities there, the job opportunities? I think there's maybe a perception there that, it, that a lot of the work on film and TV jo- productions are, are tough jobs with long hours, but you can make good money in this business too, right? Like, what would you say about the sort of job opportunities? I mean, this is obviously we're going through dark times now, but there's better. T- I'm sure there will be better times ahead. Are these... A, are these good jobs in the, in the industry? You know, they're they're fantastic for the right kind of people because you are correct. It's long hours. I don't think they're going to be as long going forward as they have been in the past um, because of some of the new sort of safety protocols coming in. But, um, you know, it's uh, maybe the only period of time in history when a sculptor can make a middle-class wage, right? And you're not sculpting marble in Rome, but you're sculpting styrofoam for a set, and then that gets immortalized on film. So, so anybody who's got you know a creative bent, um, this is an outlet for them. But at the same time, there's all kinds of different jobs in the industry, from accounting to locations management, uh, carpentry. A lot of jobs where skills can be transferred from other occupations, uh, plumbing, electrical, that kind of thing. So it's it's pretty wide-ranging, and I would say it's a fantastic opportunity. I think that probably like many other industries, it's going to take – we're not going to go back to full capacity in three months. We're going to go back to half capacity. So for the next little while, there's not going to be an uh, opportunity for a bunch of new entrants, but I think uh, all things working out the way we assume they're going to that at this time next year, uh, there's going to be great opportunity. Right. And I think – Anybody coming out of going into school uh, might want to really take a hard look at um, uh, what the opportunities are. Pete, last question for you, just briefly. When do you think uh, productions could start up again? I mean, we're, you're still waiting for the, the for the formal green light to start, right? I mean, the planning it's planning stage right now, but we're hoping for an imminent restarted productions. When could that happen? Well, people can start anytime, and you know there is a small production shooting right now. Um, it's really interesting because the lead actors are husband and wife. So there's no issue about um, physical social distancing. Uh, but um, so the green light is there. Uh, but, you know, there's always a period of, uh, especially before bigger shows, period of uh, at least a couple months where they're in prep, they're planning it. So all that stuff is starting to gear up. People have figured out how to work in offices. Um, so anyway, I think that we're going to be back up and running in September. Uh, but not at full capacity. Um, and so if we were running 55 shows uh, in January, February, I think we'll be running 25 shows. So good and bad, right? Because when you think about those 60,000 people, that still only employs half of them. And uh, there's still going to be some dislocation for some time. It's a great industry. Good luck in the future. I hope there's better days ahead. And thanks for coming on. Well, and thank you for taking the time to... Uh, to talk and think about it because uh, it really, you know, the proportion of the economy 
of the yeah. lower mainland. I think film and television is perhaps bigger than any other uh, jurisdiction. Amazing. Uh, and uh, so, uh, yeah, it's important for employment. So thanks very much. Thank you. That's Pete Mitchell. He is the president of the Vancouver Film Studios. Let's keep talking about the BC film and TV production industry. And you heard my interview there with Pete Mitchell from the Vancouver Film Studios. Let's check in now with Ian Bailey. He is a Globe and Mail journalist in the BC Bureau in Vancouver. His assignments have included covering uh, this industry uh, in the past. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Ian. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. I think this is a, an, a great industry for British Columbia. And when I, in my discussion with Pete Mitchell, they're optimistic about the BC film and TV production business getting up and running again. But it looks like it's going to be kind of a slow ramp up here. Your thoughts? Well, you know, Mike, it, it's interesting. This is an industry that's had its, in past years, its ups and downs with tax breaks and the dollar and other issues. But in the last while, it has been on a boom, an explosive boom linked partly to streaming the need for Netflix and Apple and other producers to sort of have sustained product. And now they are seriously facing an interesting challenge. It's not just the BC industry, it's the global industry. Um, In Europe, in New Zealand, where they're making sequels to Avatar, Iceland, uh, Georgia, in the United States, where they make the Marvel films, all over the world, they're struggling with this issue. They've had to redefine the way they do this work. And we're going to see in the months and weeks ahead whether it's going to work out. So it's very high stakes for British Columbia. Yeah, I think people maybe underestimate the the size of this business in British Columbia and how much how many jobs it produces. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars, thousands of thousands of jobs, and there's a lot of shows and movies and and that are shot here that maybe people don't realize, like. Uh, Pete Mitchell just mentioned to me uh, Freddie Highmore, who is the uh, talented young actor who plays the lead on The Good Doctor, which is a hit TV show that I did not know was filmed in Vancouver until you mentioned it to me a couple of, <laughs> a few days ago. Maybe maybe this business is pe- bigger than people think. Well, you know, Mike, I was Creative BC, a provincial agency that uh, that helps the film sector. I looked at their in production list last night, and uh, they have a usual tally of shows in the works and, and films and uh, TV movies, and they had 33 by my quick count last night, all tagged with TBD, postponed and temporarily suspended. There's a Sandra Bullock feature film. There's a reboot of Kung Fu, that famous series from the 1970s oh, yeah. that, that formerly had David Carradine. There's a Superman and Lois Lane show. There's a Batwoman. No, it wasn't on the list, but there's also, and this is interesting, Family Law, which is a pending series, which is going to be unusual because rare in this industry, it's a TV show set in Vancouver playing wow. itself. Okay. That's sort of being put on hold. Okay. It's a great industry. We'll see if it gets up and running in the days ahead. Ian, thank you for coming on. Excellent, Mike. All right, appreciate it. It's Ian Bailey, Globe and Mail journalist. He's done a great job uh, covering the film and TV business. But first, let's go south of the border right now and check in with Stephen Portnoy, the CBS White House correspondent, to get an update on U.S. President Donald Trump's plans for a rally uh, tomorrow in Tulsa. Stephen, thanks for taking the time. You bet. It's good to be with you. Good afternoon. Uh, Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. The rally tomorrow in Tulsa, there's been lots of controversy about it. There's thousands of people at an indoor rally for Trump. At the same time, we've got the increase in COVID-19 infections in that city, in that state. Is this rally going ahead? It is going ahead, and it's going ahead uh, boldly. I mean, the the Trump campaign and the White House are, are very... Glad to have the president standing before a, 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 a packed arena 
The president's been very desirous uh, to do it. He's been off the trail since this coronavirus spread began. His last rally was in Charlotte, North Carolina, at the very, very beginning of the outbreak. And at that event in Charlotte, North Carolina, the president essentially derided all the discussion among Democrats as they were saying that the president was mishandling the coronavirus outbreak. And uh, while he used the word hoax, he wasn't necessarily calling the coronavirus hoax, but he was suggesting that Democrats were using this as the next reason that the people should not reelect Donald Trump. Uh, right. The press secretary for the president, Kayleigh McEnany, said just moments ago that the campaign and the venue will provide hand sanitizer and masks should people decide to wear them. But she says for her part, she'll be there. She will not be wearing a mask. She says she regularly receives coronavirus tests in her uh, capacity as a White House press secretary. And she feels, quote, it's safe for me to not wear a mask. This morning, I spoke with Dr. Anthony Fauci, this nation's leading infectious disease expert at the, Na the National Institutes of Health. And he told me that, that it, it, while he didn't specifically criticize the president for wanting to hold this rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where cases are on the rise, he did say that the only surefire way to avoid uh, coming into contact with, with people who have the virus is to avoid crowds. Uh, and he also said if for one reason or another, you feel compelled to be in a crowded space, which he says experts do not recommend. Then he says, wear a mask at all times. Well, Kaylee McEnany says she's not going to. And the question really is, you know, not just what risk is posed of, uh, you know, for the people who are attending this, but also to a certain extent, what about the president himself? I mean, he's going into a packed, yeah. enclosed space where thousands of people are going to be chanting and screaming and breathing the same air. Yeah. Uh, there's got to be some risk there, too. Okay, what is the status of the COVID-19 in Tulsa at this moment? Well, cases in Oklahoma are on the rise. Yeah. Officials here in Washington and perhaps in the state of Oklahoma say that the incidence of coronavirus spread in the state of Oklahoma is not nearly what it would be, for example, in more populated states, certainly not in the New York area, where you continue to have the largest uh, infection rate, even though... Uh, they're really significantly controlling the spread of the infection in the metro New York area. Uh, what you do have, though, is an increase in Oklahoma relative to where things have been in Oklahoma. So the situation is getting better in New York and worse in Oklahoma. And right. the mayor has expressed a concern. That's the mayor of Tulsa has expressed concern about bringing that many people to his city uh, as cases are increasing because, you know, you just put two and two together. It's simple math. You're likely to wind up with increased cases by having all these people in the same enclosed space. Um, you know, that seems to be a risk that the Trump campaign, the president, and the people who will attend this rally are all willing to take. Right. right. Speaking of Stephen Portnoy, CBS White House correspondent and uh, the mayor of Tulsa, as you mentioned, Stephen, uh, he, he's a Republican, and but he's also signed an executive order to establish a curfew for parts of the downtown area uh, near where this rally uh, is going to happen tomorrow, uh, saying there could be 100,000 people down there uh, tomorrow. Are we expecting, are you guys expecting any trouble there? Are there going to be protests or any, any any violence anticipated? What what are the thoughts there? Well, I, I don't know where that uh, idea comes from, but the president did tweet this morning, and this is his quote, any protesters, anarchists, agitators, low looters or lowlifes who are going to Oklahoma, please understand you will not be treated like you have been in New York, Seattle, or Minneapolis. It will be a much different scene. Uh, an allusion to the president's 
belief that protesters have been allowed to um, you know, carry on and even commit violence in those places that he mentions. Now, I don't know that large-scale protests or any kind of demonstrations are expected for Tulsa, anything other than perhaps um, what organizers may intend to be peaceful marches for the Black Lives Matter movement. But the president obviously is issuing a threat of what, what seems to be a threat of violence, although his press secretary said today that um, he is uh, not intending to do that. He's, he's basically saying that you're not going to have or, or vi- the kind of violent scenes, inexcusable scenes, she says, uh, in some of the cities in the United States will not be permitted in Tulsa. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Okay, last question for you, Stephen. Trump seems to have been in some trouble here recently. If you take a look at some of his polling numbers trending downward as the the U.S. economy sputtering here during this pandemic, some of the other problems that the president has faced. He loves these big rallies, and I I don't think he's going to have any trouble filling up that arena uh, tomorrow in, in Tulsa. Is Trump and his team hoping that this is some kind of maybe a turnaround for him and try and get the momentum back on his side, or is it also potentially a risk, though, if we see another spike in COVID cases in, say, that city uh, or elsewhere, and this and and they blame this rally as being some kind of like a super spreader event? I think that risk exists. I think they're cognizant of it, but willing to plow through it. I think more than the need for the president to feel uh, as though he's in a comfortable environment, basking in the adoration of the crowd, there's a practical reason that the Trump campaign wants to have these rallies. They are enormous uh, generators of information, data, uh, phone numbers, email addresses of people who sign up to attend them. The campaign manager of the Trump campaign boasts about the fact that he is essentially running a data mining operation every time he holds one of these rallies. And he also tells reporters that a significant number of the people who have come to these events have no record of voting in the past, which suggests that uh, at least he would have you believe that by holding these rallies and by inviting people to them and by collecting their information, uh, the, the, the president is expanding his base. Uh, he's, he's taking the number of people who voted for him and then adding their friends, uh, which uh, is a formidable thing. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, American politics, the ability to draw a crowd, certainly in recent times, has been emblematic and, and more than an emblem. Uh, an actual physical symbol of uh, your support in the country. So that's one thing that certainly the Democrats aren't doing and may not even, he would argue, be able to do. Okay, Stephen, we're following it very closely. Thank you for taking the time for us today. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. Stephen Portnoy, CBS White House correspondent. Now Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the two Canadians who were detained in China almost 18 months ago in what many regarded as retaliation for Canada's arrest of uh, Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. The latest development on this now, a disturbing one for these two men, uh, these two Canadians detained in China. They are now formally charged with espionage in China. Let's check in now with Matthew Fisher. He's a military, military journalist. He's a global news commentator. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Matthew. Hi, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good, Matthew. Thanks a lot for doing this. Is there any doubt in your mind or in the views of, of most commentators and analysts that these two men, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, were arrested and detained by uh, Chinese authorities in retaliation for Canada arresting Meng Wanzhou? Is that what happened here? 
There is absolutely no doubt about it. In fact, finally, a few weeks ago, the Chinese ambassador to Ottawa said as much. And today, again, there is a direct connection. Last week, I believe it was, a Canadian court ruled uh, that the extradition process could continue. It happened in your city, uh, Vancouver. And uh, immediately, almost after that, the espionage charges go ahead. So there are two separate links, and they absolutely prove uh, that this is the case. This is the kind of hardball that China plays, not just with Canada, but with quite a few other nations. It's very ugly. They take hostages. They kidnap people. They've done it with Japan. They've done it uh, with one or two European countries. They've done it with people who live in Hong Kong who thought they were safe. Uh, it is absolutely outrageous behavior, and uh, I think the Canadian public realizes that 85% of them in recent polls say they want our government to have much less to do with China. They don't trust China. Our government, of course, has pursued a, a very ardent policy of loving China and trying to make greater trade with them even after these uh, uh, two Michaels were uh, taken hostage or kidnapped, if you like, by China. Yeah. Okay, Canada has called the, these arrests of uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor arbitrary. China, of course, they, they deny that uh, these uh, det- these arrests were in retaliation for Meng Wanzhou's arrest here in Vancouver. But uh, both men have been detained in China since December of 2018. They have now both been formally charged with spying on national secrets and providing intelligence to outside entities. Michael Kogvrig is a former diplomat. Michael Spavor is a businessman who had been in China. We know that the, the, the court system or the legal system in China is a very secretive one, Matthew. It's, it's a closed, a closed kind of system. But what are the rules and your understanding? Like, will there be any disclosure of evidence against these two men? Will they be able to mount any kind of legitimate defense? No. No to both uh, of your questions. Uh, you are absolutely right. It is an opaque process. And because they can invoke uh, these famous words, state secrets, nothing will be revealed. In fact, often in Chinese cases, the people being charged aren't allowed to see the evidence against them because it's a state secret. Uh, It's a very dire situation because China convicts almost always. It's 99.9%. And the courts are a tool of the Communist Party of China. There's a direct link. That's who they owe their loyalty to, not to any democratic justice system as we understand it. These men will get somewhere, I'm guessing, between 10 and 20 years in jail for these bogus charges. It it is extremely unfortunate. They really are small pawns in a big game, and I have no doubt about their innocence. I'm, I'm sure they are totally innocent. Oh, okay, yeah, there's nearly a 100% conviction rate uh, for cases like these, as you mentioned. Uh, do they have any access to counsel? Do they have any access to diplomatic officials from Canada? Are they getting any help at all? They will have uh, access to a Chinese lawyer, a Chinese lawyer that may be... Uh, hired for them by the Canadian government, maybe hired for them by their families. But uh, in previous cases, uh, they, um, people being charged often have 
trouble communicating with their lawyers, and they also have a lot of trouble with consular services. And in fact, the two Michaels have had only sporadic uh, contact with consular uh, officials uh, over there. Uh, nothing like the way Meng is living in Vancouver, her sort of gilded detention where she goes around town in luxury cars and uh, lives in luxury homes. There's just no comparison uh, whatsoever. Uh, and uh, they face very harsh conditions now in jail, but upon conviction, it will be even worse. Chinese prisons are absolutely awful places uh, to be. Uh, prisoners have no rights to speak of. Uh, China claims they're giving them a bit better food to help them so that they don't get the coronavirus. That seems to be the only very small concession that China's made in any of this. They're quite defiant. They don't give it uh, a darn about what uh, the world thinks when they behave this way. And so far, they've gotten away with it. Okay, speaking of Matthew Fisher, about uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor detained in China, the two Canadians now facing formal espionage charges there. Uh, Michael, the Canadian government, of course, has objected and called these det uh, arbitrary detentions. Uh, Justin Trudeau said this morning he's disappointed with this news. Is there anything more that the Canadian government can do to help get these men be released? Well, words like disappointed, given the circumstances, really, don't you think, Mike, that's pretty wimpy? Uh, Canada has to stand yeah. for something. I don't want to make too big a connection, but we did not win that United Nations vote because countries clearly don't admire and respect us. China has shown no uh, respect for Canada throughout this entire process. In, in fact, contempt for Canada. Uh, we don't have many individual levers that we can hit China with. One is we can ban F or uh, 5G technology from Huawei. Uh, that uh, is uh, what our intelligence agencies want. That's what the Canadian military wants, and that's what most of our allies want. Canada has been dithering about that, lest it offend China for a long time. The only other thing China uh, can be done against China, and it really is something that could be substantial, is Canada has to get together with Australia, with the Europeans, with the United States, right. and figure out a strategy, a trade okay. strategy, and also a security strategy to stop China from pulling these kind of stunts. We certainly can't okay. do it alone, but until now, we've kind of done it alone. We've been the most polite nation possible towards okay. China, more than any country I know of. Matthew, thank you for coming on with your thoughts and analysis. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Matthew Fisher, he's a military journalist. He's a global news commentator. Let's talk about that uh, developing story at this hour earlier today. B.C. Health Minister Adrian Dix announced an investigation into allegations that B.C. healthcare staff had played a game guessing the blood alcohol level of Indigenous hospital patients. That has sparked a probe now by Mary Ellen Turpel lafont British Columbia's former Children's Commissioner. Have a listen to this. This is uh, Adrian Dix speaking earlier today. These uh, issues came to my attention last night. Uh, they're serious allegations. They obviously need to be investigated uh, so that we determine the extent of them. And that's what Mary Ellen Turpel-Lafont will do. 
but it also requires recommendations, remedies, and reconciliation going forward. And I'll be seeking, obviously, her recommendations and advice and others as to the next steps. I think uh, I don't know if you were, uh, if you heard some of the details of the of what the allegations are. They involve a game being being played, guessing the blood alcohol level of patients in the ER, and it, in particular indigenous patients, and obvi the obvious effect of such games being played on patient care. And so uh, it's of course important to determine the facts, but it's also important to work together to take action and to move forward. All right, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix earlier today. Let's talk now to Daniel Fontaine. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Métis Nation in British Columbia. Daniel, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Okay, disturbing story. When you first heard the details about this, what went through your mind? Well, I was first uh, notified of the details of this yesterday afternoon, um, and I must say just hearing about the the allegations of a game being played called Price is Right, which links uh, you know Indigenous peoples, Métis people, to um, an assumption that they're drunk when they're coming into an emergency room is just absolutely disgusting. And uh, I agree with uh, the minister that it, these types of activities are, are racist and they have to be called out for that. And I was very disturbed to hear that uh, yesterday afternoon. And uh, furthermore, uh, to learn of uh, two reports that were issued, uh, uh, produced back in March of 2019, uh, which catalog uh, systemic racism within the BC healthcare system. And it, this is all coming from healthcare workers documented by the Provincial Health Services Authority, which, while the Price is Right game in itself is, is disgusting, um, having read the report, uh, clearly there are issues that need to be dealt with throughout the entire healthcare system in British Columbia, and they need to be done uh, immediately. Oh, okay, these reports that you reference from March 2019, are were those released publicly at the time, or are these new? I... I'm unaware of them, Michael, being released publicly at the time. Uh, my understanding is that they were not uh, released publicly, So, um, but they are now available. Uh, we had them uh, publicly made on our website. And I would encourage all British Columbians to read the contents of those reports because I would dare say that any British Columbian that reads through that and, and the catalogue of, of racism and treatment of Métis and Indigenous peoples across British Columbia would be a call for action to anyone who reads that. And I, I, I think it's important for people to do that. Speaking to Daniel Fontaine from the Métis Nation of British Columbia, Daniel, when we read about allegations of this type of racist kind of game playing in our healthcare system, I think it's shocking for a lot of people. We are, we regard our healthcare workers as, as heroes, uh, especially at, at this time in this, this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have any thoughts or insight on how, how widespread this is? I mean, there are a lot of unanswered questions here. The minister refused this morning to say, for example, which hospital th this allegedly took place at. Were there multiple hospitals? Mm -hmm. Where this exactly happened? Do you think those type of details should be disclosed? They should be disclosed. Um, as I'm advised, uh, the Provincial Health Services Authority is aware because it was part. It came out as part of a, a cultural sensitivity uh, training. So it's called uh, Sanya's uh, Cultural Safety Training Program. And, and as part of that training, online training, um, the healthcare staff did report that through to PHSA. So it's it's not like they weren't aware of, of this happening. So it, it, it is, uh, I'm assuming they can contact the individual fairly quickly as to who uh, made this allegation 
and for uh, that investigation to be done uh, immediately. And I, I, I have the utmost respect in, in, in Mary Ellen Trapelafon. She's uh, a well-respected individual, and I trust that she will produce a report in the coming months that uh, is important for us all to read. But I will uh, also say that I'm deeply concerned that if these things are happening, like the game, like the Price is Right, and everything else that's catalogued in that report that came across my desk yesterday afternoon, we can't wait for a report for three or four months. We need to take action, and that's why this morning we did give four recommendations to the ministry to move quickly on this to ensure that uh, training is available, it's standardized, and to make sure that all healthcare workers, in particular those in emergency rooms, are provided with the type of training that they need to uh, make people feel, Métis people and Indigenous people feel like when they're going into a hospital setting, they will get treated like absolutely every other British Columbian. And right now that isn't the case. Speaking of Daniel Fontaine, Métis Nation of British Columbia, Daniel, you mentioned those reports on racism in the healthcare system that that's been posted on on your on your website. What jumped out at you in, in those reports when when you read it that when you read them? Well, Michael, I don't even know where to begin. To be honest with you, I, I read through those. Um, it, it's emotional to read that. It really is. You read of, of pregnant women who are, are, are uh, coming into uh, emergency rooms who are requiring assistance who aren't getting it. You're reading of, of Indigenous people who are coming into the healthcare system and, and um, they're vomiting and the, the, the staff are laughing and joking that um, they're drunk when in fact it was proven that they weren't. They were getting cancer treatment. You know, like you go through this one after another after another. It's so deeply disturbing to read that and to think that we've known about this now and it's been catalogued since March of 2019. We are June 2020. And I, I would dare say that we should have moved really quickly uh, when that information was catalogued and was collected. We should have been, uh, you know, the provincial government should be working with Métis Nation BC and with other Indigenous uh, governments across the province to say, how can we make this right? What do we need to do to fix this? And uh, I'm hoping that uh, with the revelation today, that we've begun that process, and Mary Ellen Trapel-Lafon's report will highlight um, why this report was produced in the first place, who knew about it, uh, why has it not been acted upon since, all those are, I have lots more questions than I do answers at this point. Yeah, I mean, that does raise a lot of dis- uh, important questions that you j- you just raised, and I, I think among them, for, in my own mind too, is what about some more disclosure on exactly uh, where this took allegedly took place, the hospital or hospitals involved. I mean, he wouldn't even s- disclose which which provincial health authority uh, this this involved. He wouldn't even be as general as that. I mean, do you know? Do you know, Daniel, with your insight and and what you've mm-hmm. been what what has been shared with you? Do you know where this took place? Which hospital and which health authorities we're talking about here? I don't, uh, Michael. That's something that my uh, ministry staff are, are we're looking into and trying to to figure out. But I can tell you that that information is available. Uh, the training was conducted by the provincial health services authority, as I understand it. Uh, it was online training, so my assumption is that it was recorded. Uh, there were probably uh, screen grabs or things that are there available for uh, the ministry and for the provincial health services authority to track down, if they so wish. We don't need Mary Ellen Trapelafond uh, to do that, uh, although I believe she probably will look into that. But that information should be available this afternoon, my assumption would be, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, I mean, it is good to hear the minister has taken this very seriously, this information. The fact that he's appointed Mary Ellen is, is good. I think that's important. But 
like I said, uh, this could take months before a report, perhaps years before a report comes out. There was no timeline released today. Meanwhile, we have uh, Métis people, we have Indigenous people, First Nation, Inuit, around the province on the eve of the National Indigenous Peoples Day on Sunday, going into the healthcare system and reading this systemic racism that's happening within our healthcare system. And I, I think we have to do more than simply ask for a report. We need to take some action, and that's why we made the recommendations to the, to the ministry this morning. Right, and what were, could you go over some of those recommendations again of, ex, of exactly what you're looking for here? Yeah, so firstly, we, we've asked for an independent uh, inquiry. So for that uh, to be done outside the, the realm of the government, and I'm, I'm convinced that Mary Ellen, uh, everyone knows her quite well in the province. She doesn't yeah. pull any punches, so I'm pretty yeah. confident that she will do that. So I'm pleased that they've, uh, they've accepted that recommendation. We've also asked that all frontline staff uh, are required to take mandatory First Nations, Métis and Inuit training, and that that be standardized in order to help increase the, the health professional accountability in the delivery of healthcare. That was the second item. The third was we wanted them to commit to structural and systemic changes to actually dismantle Indigenous-specific uh, racism and to ensure that there's uh, culturally uh, safe healthcare experiences for Indigenous people in BC. We wanted to hear that, that commitment. And then lastly, we've asked uh, the ministry to work with Métis Nation BC, to work with other Aboriginal governments, to ensure that we're at the table we're not having the kind of dialogues, Michael, with the Ministry of Health, quite frankly, that we should be as a nation. We're on the outside looking in. And that's part of the problem, is when we're not at the table and we're not having those discussions and the Métis people are disregarded as a nation within our province of British Columbia, these types of things happen because we're not at the table to provide that guidance and that advice. So I'm hoping that will be followed through. What do you know... This this guessing game that you've mentioned, you've, you've mentioned that it's, it was known as the Price is Right game, where health hospital staff were guessing, trying to guess the blood alcohol content of, in, of Indigenous patients. When did, when did that happen? Do you know, and how long has that been known? Because I believe the minister said this morning that he learned about this yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, were other officials in government, uh, did they know about that earlier than this? I don't know. All I can tell you is that I did alert uh, the minister's office late yesterday afternoon and into the evening that I became aware of this. And I did indicate to them that we would be making a public statement on this uh, this morning. So that, that beyond that, I don't know uh, what uh, the minister or the, the senior levels of the Ministry of Health were aware or not aware. I, I can tell you from my Ministry of Health staff, they've advised that, um, that the statement from the worker would lead one to believe that this goes beyond a single hospital and a single employee, that this goes well beyond that. And when you juxtapose it with the report that was released back in March of 2019, it's very disturbing that these are not, uh, this, is, this Price is Right game is not a, a one-off. It is part of a much larger problem that needs to be dealt with and needs to have a, a resolution to soon. We can't wait another four or five or six more months for this. We need to get some action on this quickly. And I'm hoping that if this is discovered and there are individuals who are in fact participating in this game, and if they're listening to this show today, I hope that they're held accountable for that type of activity. And I hope that uh, they are no longer working in our healthcare system to ensure that people who are uh, wanting that that care and are Indigenous in this province don't have to, to face that type of racism anymore. Daniel, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Okay, thank you. That's Daniel Fontaine. He's the Chief Executive Officer of the Métis Nation in British Columbia, uh, commenting on those allegations uh, this morning.
of uh, frontline healthcare workers playing a game, a guessing game, guessing the blood alcohol level of indigenous patients in hospital. That has now triggered an investigation ordered by uh, Adrian Dix, the health minister today, Mary Ellen Turpel-Lafond, the former children's commissioner, will head up that investigation.